Well, good morning. It's always a privilege and a pleasure uh, to have the opportunity to be able to, sit, to speak to you. We don't take it for granted and are uh, glad for the opportunity. Glad you're all here. Made it out in the snow. I was out early this morning uh, shoveling before I came here, so I was all sweated up and, uh, and ready to roll. So it's uh, quite a morning already. Uh, I don't know if you realize this, if you've ever stopped to think about it, but we live in amazing times. It's true. Absolutely amazing times where more of the world is accessible to more people than at any time in human history. It's true. More people today can reach out and connect with more people than has ever been possible before. There have been many amazing technological developments in the field of communication itself in the past 50 years. There's no denying it. Absolutely none. We've come a really, really long way in a very short period of time when it comes to sending and receiving information. From the invention of the telegraph back in the late 1800s, which itself was a great advancement in technology, to the advent of 5G in present day, the pace of change has been nothing short of astonishing. In the vast array of all of the, the technological and amazing equipment and achievements that have been accomplished, that has been deployed to aid in human communication, one form, one form stands out above all the rest as being both high in quality, high in precision. Nothing, I repeat, nothing has exceeded this particular art form when it comes to conveying both human thought and emotion more accurately and succinctly. Far ahead of its time, far ahead of its time, this wonder of media has captured the hearts and minds of the population in a way that no other art form ever could, and I dare say ever will. <laughs> I speak, of course, of the unparalleled communication achievement known as the art form of claymation. Yes, yes indeed, claymation. Now, I don't know where you're coming from this morning. No matter what your background is, we can all agree on one thing, and that is that the art form of claymation is the most persuasive, most effective, most useful art form of the ages, conveying deep truths for all to hear and see, unrivaled in beauty and clarity. I mean, who could forget such classics as Wallace and Gromit, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Shaun the Sheep, Classics, each one in their own right. Now, perhaps lesser known, but equally powerful, the classic Santa Claus is coming to town. Yes, the tale of Kris Kringle and the Grinchy Burgermeister Meister Burger, who doesn't want the children of the town to have any toys. Indeed, so many, so many life lessons can be gleaned from these films. Now, it's the theme for one of these particular films that I want to zoom in on a little bit today. Now, you're familiar with it, I'm sure. It comes from Santa Claus is Coming to Town. You know the song. You know how it goes. Oh, you better watch out. Better not cry. Better not pout. I'm telling you why the big chubby guy in the red suit's coming. Yeah, he's making a list. Checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and who's nice. That's right, because the big guy's coming. 
He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. Be good for goodness sake. Absolutely. A wonderful little ditty. A wonderful little ditty. Used to coax the urchins into good behavior because after all, after all, being nice and being good are the keys to lots of presents. Or so the song might lead us to believe. To be sure, being good and being nice is very nice and well and good. But how does one know if they've been nice enough or good enough to warrant getting an amazing haul of presents? And by the way, who gets to determine whether something is or someone is nice or good? I mean, are we all supposed to just automatically know? I mean, it's good to be nice, and it's nice to be good. But as goals for human living, they're kind of poorly defined, don't you think? So while the song makes for a wonderful claymation theme, and it does, it, mar it makes a woefully inadequate, undeveloped set of life goals, and even worse, theology. Sadly, many people subscribe to a Santa Claus is coming to town picture of God. And I know that it sounds silly on its face, but as silly as it sounds, it's probably a lot more accurate than we would care to admit. They think of the Almighty God as making a list and checking it twice to see if they've been more naughty than nice. And so, in order to curry favor with the big man upstairs, they hope against hope that they can be good enough, for goodness sake. And if they can, well, maybe, maybe, God will sprinkle down some good things and send some good stuff their way in this life. And maybe, just maybe, let them into heaven in the next. But there is one major flaw in this equation, one huge fly in the ointment. God never said, be good for goodness sake. Do you know that if you search the entire NIV or ESV translation of the Bible, do you know how many times you'll come across the word nice? Zero times. Not once. Precisely zero times. God did not call people to be nice or simply to be good. He calls us to a much different standard. Really something unthinkable, unimaginable, unattainable. Something far beyond our reach. He calls us to be like him. To be like he is. Now, when someone says to you or to me that we need to be nice, we kind of have an idea in our heads of, of what we think that means. And so we reason to ourselves that we could probably conjure up both the will and the ability to do that, right? To be nice or to be kind to someone else. We can go through a drive-thru and pay for the person's order behind us, right? That's doable. We could probably pull that off if we had to. Have you ever done that? It's really nice. Or maybe had someone do that for you? It really is. It's a super nice thing. We can walk an elderly woman across the street or help carry in the groceries. Hey, we can even avoid that hot button topic of conversation that we know is going to set our siblings or our family or our coworkers off, all in the name of being nice. Right? We kind of think to ourselves, we can do that, right? We can be nice. It's within our grasp. 
We may not be nice 100% of the time, but in a pinch, particularly if there's a good enough payoff for our nice behavior, we can do it. Similarly, we're told that when we're told that we need to be good, it doesn't seem like that's overly difficult or out of reach, right? When a parent tells a child to be good, what are they really saying? Well, they're basically saying, you better not pout, you better not cry, you better not shout, or else, right? That's what they're saying. But when we tell that child, be good, there are two underlying assumptions. First, we assume that the child knows what it means to be good. And second, we assume that it is well within their ability to control so that they can be good. It would be unreasonable and cruel to tell a kid, you need to be good, if they couldn't understand what that was and couldn't do it. The point I'm making here is simply this. When we hear the phrase, be nice, or be good, we genuinely feel like it is entirely within our ability to do it. We don't really need help for that or guidance on what we should do. So if we don't do it, I guess it's just because we're not good all the time or we're not all nice 100% of the time. In other words, at least sometimes we're naughty. Now here's where this gets tricky. We live in a culture that values being nice and being good above all else. The world values this idea of playing nice, whatever that happens to mean, over practically every other virtue that you can imagine. It has no problem sacrificing truth on the altar of what it perceives to be niceness. This is, at least in part, why social marketing is so effective. You buy a pair of Bombas socks not just because they're good socks, but because they'll donate a pair if you buy a pair. So in a way, you're being good by purchasing their product. And that's nice, it is, right? And they are good socks, especially for skiing. In the early days of Google, their corporate motto was don't be evil. In other words, it is in your power and ability to be nice and be good, and not only should you do these things, you must. Now, deep down, we know that there are higher virtues than nice. Love, for one, faithfulness, truth, honesty. You see, part of what distinguishes the wisdom of Christ from the wisdom of the world is that Jesus was unwilling to sacrifice truth on the altar of perceived niceness. Our culture would have us believe that the primary objective of humanity is to be good. Right? Our society tells you that if you can just be a good enough person and live a good life, you've accomplished the goal. You've made it. You were good. You did good to others. You were successful at living. Not only is this the prevailing wisdom of the culture, but many churches and church-going people have fallen prey to the same notion that being a Christ follower is synonymous with saying, you are simply a nice person. It's basically just about good, clean living, or so they think. Now, it's one thing for the culture to misunderstand what it means for a person to be a Christ follower. But when the church itself is confused, that is a much bigger issue. How can a church clearly preach a gospel message if the Savior being preached makes only a marginal difference in the lives of those who claim to follow him? To equate 
being a Christian with some sort of general niceness completely misses the point of what it means to follow Christ. It's like saying what it means to be human is that you simply have two eyes, a mouth, and a nose. The reality is lots of creatures have eyes and ears and mouths and noses that are not humans. Bears, cats, bats, hippopotamuses. But they're not human. Being human is about so much more than that. Being human, we're self-aware. We can appreciate art and music and beauty. Being human means we can formulate deep thoughts and can communicate those thoughts with clarity through the art of claymation. It means more than just what you look like, more than just that you have a nose and two eyes and a mouth. Being human is about so much more than that. In the same way, being a Christ follower is about so much more than simply what you do or how you act. If being a Christ follower, being a Christian, and just being nice were one and the same, why would we need Christ at all? The Apostle Paul put it this way, In Galatians 2.21, I don't set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law. In other words, through just being a good person, through just being nice. Then Christ died for nothing. It's a bold statement. So there has to be something more to it. And there is. You see, the fact is, none of us are 100% good all the time. None of us are nice 100% of the time. We use a different word to convey 100% goodness and 100% niceness, and that word is perfection. And all too often, I think we as humans are really quick to let ourselves off the hook when it comes to being perfect. We often toss around phrases like, well, nobody's perfect, in an effort to deflect from the fact that we are not perfect. It's true. The phrase nobody's perfect is true. But when we use that true statement to get around an equally true statement, that's a problem. That equally true statement is this. We are not perfect. We're not. We can acknowledge that, but we should not be taking ourselves off the hook. Said a different way, uh, at least sometimes we're naughty. Said yet another way, we're sinful said yet another way, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Using the true statement, nobody's perfect, to diffuse the fact that we are not perfect has the effect of blunting the reality of our circumstance, which is simply this. The perfect and holy God finds our niceness and goodness to be lacking. And that is a big problem because at the end of the day, it's not our culture, but God who has the final say on whether or not we were successful at living and what the ramifications for the way we lived our lives are. Now, I'm really thankful to God that this passage doesn't end there. Listen to the rest of what Paul writes. He says, yes, it is true, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely, how? By his grace, through the redemption that came by, Jesus, or by Christ Jesus, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of blood, of his blood, to be received by faith. God never called us 
to be simply nice or good, his requirement is much bigger than that. If we think back to uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, where he, he taught people uh, a lot of different things, he completely challenged the cultural mindset of his day in that sermon, challenging his followers to something higher, something more, something different. He told them, you've heard it was said, don't murder. I say, don't hate. You've heard it was said, don't commit adultery. I say, don't lust in your heart. Unless your goodness and niceness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Who were these Pharisees and teachers of the law? Well, they were the do-goodiest bunch of good-doing do-gooders that ever was. At least in their own minds, so they thought. If you doubted it, you could just ask them and they'd let you know. But Jesus' point to his followers was unless you are better, or unless you were better than those who appeared to be the best, they would not enter heaven. To which many people probably said, huh, what? And Jesus replied, exactly. Now you're getting it. He said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. With each new paragraph, Jesus' words must have hit his listeners like a bomb, completely obliterating what they thought it meant to be in connection and right relationship with God. But he saved the best part for last, the best part for the, for the end of chapter 5, where Jesus hit them with this. Be perfect. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And you could just see his followers. <clears throat> mind bomb. Total mind bomb. Any thought that they may have had that they could be good enough or nice enough was now completely destroyed. And that was entirely the point. Actually, this is not a new concept. It was not a new concept. Jesus was actually quoting scripture. We read in Leviticus 19 that the Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy, be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. In Deuteronomy 18, 13, we read, you must be blameless before the Lord your God. The apostle Peter put it well in 1 Peter 1, 15 to 16, where he said, but just who he just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. You see, when we hear phrases like be nice or be good, we genuinely feel like it is entirely within our ability to do it. We can kind of fool ourselves into thinking that we could be those things at least for a little while. But when we hear the phrase be holy, that is a game changer. We know when we hear words like be holy, that is, a, it's a different ball game. It's way out of our league. Be perfect, be blameless, and most of all, be holy. When we hear and see scripture like that, we come to the realization those things are beyond us. We cannot do it. There's no amount of dieting that I can do or, or exercising or, or self-help or meditation or contemplation that any of us could ever do to approach being perfect or approach being holy. We could maybe be sort of good sometimes, perhaps even pretty good. Hey, on our best day, we may even approach great, but perfect, holy, forget about it. Can't do it. And that 
is the starting point of having a relationship with God. Because until we get to this point and we realize that we cannot meet the requirements that God has laid out for being connected to him in a right relationship, we're nowhere. Be holy because I am holy is a gift from a holy God to the human race. It's truth in its purest form. It is the real life goal, the only one that matters. The dictate from on high that we are to be like our maker, holy and perfect. And it's when we come to the realization that this is humanly impossible that we finally come to the end of ourselves and the beginning of God. And we often talk about coming to God through prayer using ABC. It's a very effective tool that helps us to communicate how that relationship with God begins, right? We, A is for admit. We admit we've done wrong. B stands for believe. Believe in Jesus as God's son uh, and that he died on the cross for our sins. And then C, either choose or commit to follow God with our lives. But I might suggest a new acronym that maybe even comes before maybe even comes before, the ABCs. And this acronym is only one letter. It's the letter H. Help. Help. Help us. Help me. Help. Help. Because that's the only legitimate response to be holy because I am holy. It's help me because I can't do it. I can't do it on my own. It's impossible for me. To which our gracious God puts his arm around our shoulders and answers, yes, I know. I can help. It's not that being nice or being good is wrong. Being nice and good is great. But nice and good are simply not enough to be in a right relationship with God. Being nice doesn't bridge the gap between us and holiness, and therein lies the problem. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect turns the tables and reveals that being connected with, with God requires something that just, it isn't inside of us. It isn't in our ability to do it on our own. And more than that, it's not that we personally can't do it, that we're just not good enough. It can't be done, humanly speaking. It is humanly impossible. Humans in and of themselves cannot conjure up holiness Yet, the words still stand. They're unmoving and unchanged. Be holy because I am holy. What are we to do with that? Fortunately, Jesus had more to say on this topic. Recall for a moment the passage that we read earlier today from Matthew 19 about the rich young ruler who thought of himself as good. Right? Jesus challenged him to be what? perfect. And the man went away sad because he realized the great cost of perfection and that he was simply unable to do it. Jesus' private words to his followers were shocking. The, the Bible says they were completely astonished. He said to them, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to be saved. And I think at this point, we need to avoid the temptation of carving out a loophole for ourselves by thinking, well, yeah, it's hard for the rich to be saved, but not for a normal person like me. All right, those rich, it's really tough for them. No, that's not what the passage is saying at all. Well, how do we know that? Well, we know that 
Because Jesus' followers understood exactly what he meant, and their question reveals it. The question that they asked him after they heard him say that, who then could be saved? Why did they ask that specifically? Because they understood the answer. No one, no one, on human effort alone, no one can be saved. And Jesus' response is perfect. With man, this is impossible, but with God, with God, all things are possible. Humans can't do it, but God can. And that's really, that's the whole point. We need God to start the process, to lay out the plan, to do the work, and to carry it through to completion. Being a Christ follower doesn't start with the individual. It never has. It starts and ends with God. Christ followers aren't just nice people. They are people who have simply acknowledged that holiness is unattainable, and so they reach out to the only one who can solve this unsolvable problem, God. The requirement for being in right relationship with God is holiness. God is holy, and those in relationship with him must be holy. So how can this requirement be satisfied by people who are by nature unholy because of sin? Well, where human ability ends, the power of God begins. When we admit our weakness, our inability to ever be good enough or nice enough, to ever be holy, we wake up to this simple truth. Holiness has to be given. It has to be imparted. Holiness is not earned. It is delivered. The one who is holy has to change the one who is not in order to make them holy. Holiness is not automatic. It's not simply that all people are made in God's image and are thus holy in His sight. Quite the contrary. All people are made in God's image and are imperfect and sinful and depraved, and separated from him. That's the starting line that we're at when we come upon this earth. While we are all made in God's image, only those who ask to be redeemed, who ask for God to make them holy, are made holy by the blood of Jesus. Now, the good news for us is that that is exactly what God does. He not only informs us of the requirement of holiness, he also delivers the means by which we can be made holy. We learn how this works in Hebrews chapter 10, where we read, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you, God, did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, God, you were, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. And the writer goes on to say, and by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Christ's followers are made holy by faith in the sacrifice of Jesus. God makes them holy not because of what they do, but because of what Jesus did. The Holy One Himself is more than able to purify completely those who put their faith and trust in Him. He later writes, For by one sacrifice He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And the phrase, 
being made holy indicates the continuous nature of the process. While our salvation happens in a moment, the process of being made holy happens throughout our lives as we live under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is not just an add-on to the lives of people who already think of themselves as good. Jesus is not an air freshener that we can spray on occasion into our lives to mask the odor. Jesus is open heart surgery. Jesus is a heart transplant. In Ezekiel, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Christ followers are people who have requested and received a heart transplant performed by the master surgeon. And for that surgery to be successful requires two things. It demands the sacrifice of the donor, in this case Jesus, his own crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. And it requires the acceptance of the new organ by the recipient. In our case, letting the heart of Jesus control how we think, how we live, which causes a complete and total transformation. What the world sometimes mistakes for general niceness is actually a heart transplant. And it's up to us to set the record straight and let people know that we are who we are, not because we're nice or good for goodness sake. We are who we are because somebody else made a sacrifice and gave his life so that we could live, so that we could be fundamentally transformed from who we were to who we are ultimately becoming. We are not perfect, but we are changed. We are different. In the words of Paul, says we've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one point, at one point in time, we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. Oh, how different, how differently we know him now. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Amazing, amazing that God can do that. In a lot of Bibles, when you open up to the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the title of the books will be listed as the Gospel of Matthew, or the Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Luke, Gospel of John. These are short form for what the books actually are, the Holy Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Matthew, the Holy Gospel of Jesus Christ according to Mark, Luke, and John. Gospel means good news, and the good news about Jesus is not that he makes good people better. It's that he takes sinners and makes them holy. He transforms those who are lost into those who are found and saved to eternal life by the grace of God. He saves those who cannot save themselves because of the love and compassion of a holy God. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's the holy gospel. And that is what our culture needs to be confronted with today. That is the message that we as a church and as Christ followers have been charged with delivering for the past 2,000 years and the message that the church must deliver from now until Jesus comes again. So don't just be good for goodness sake. Allow the one 
who is truly good and holy to transform you into his holy child, not for goodness sake, but for the sake of the name of Jesus. Let's talk to him. Holy Father, you are good beyond what we can understand. You are holy beyond what we can understand. We, we read in Scripture that holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You're different. You're set apart. And God, we can't do anything to make ourselves good enough or nice enough or holy, but you can. And for that fact, we give you thanks and we give you credit and we reach out to you and pray that you would help us to, uh, to understand the sacrifice of Jesus and to allow it to, to purify us as we live, as we think, as we breathe. Continue to transform us uh, in the way that you want to. For your holy name's sake, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great morning.